you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. This story is by far the most modern case that I've covered thus far. Though, that's not to say that it's the most modern that I will cover. I have a few in mind that occur after this. In general, I feel like I'm drawn to older cases because there's just a certain something about them. But there are some modern cases that I find interesting. This one is one I wasn't really that familiar with until just after I released the last episode and I saw a documentary on it. I found it to be an interesting one, and I was unsure what my opinions on the case were. So, I decided I'd do an episode on it. So without any further ado, I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 63, A Blaze on Banyan. It was very early on the morning of October 8, 1964, about 12.30 a.m., when a black Volkswagen drove along Banyan Street on the outskirts of Altaluma, California. It was raining slightly. A woman was driving the car, a man slumped in the passenger seat and leaning against the door. The woman driving was 34-year-old housewife Lucille Miller. Originally from Winnipeg, Manitoba, she had attended Walla Walla College in Washington State, and it was here she met a graduate of that same school, Gordon Miller. A dentist, it was he who was the passenger in the car. At the time of the events that were to follow, The couple had been married 15 years. They had three children and were residents of Altaluma. Soon after the car passed the intersection with Sapphire Street, the car suddenly veered to the right and ran off the road, tumbling down over a three or four foot embankment to rest in a grove of lemon trees. Suddenly, the car erupted into flames. The woman jumped out of the car, tried frantically to get the man out, and when she found she was unable to do so, threw a rock through a window in an effort to push him out with a stick. When this failed, she ran to the nearest house she could find, that of a Mrs. Maurice Swenson, to call the accident into the police. By the time she called it in, and the police arrived on scene, the passenger was dead. This simple incident would go on to be a major story in Southern California for months and years to come. It took emergency personnel an hour to extinguish the flames and remove the body of her husband. Almost immediately, the police had noticed what they perceived as inconsistencies. The call made from the farmhouse, for instance, was to attorney Harold J. Lance, who actually is the one who phoned police, fire, 
and the California Highway Patrol. Almost immediately upon their arrival, Sheriff Frank Bland sent two detectives, Charles Callahan and Joseph Carr, as well as Sergeant William Patterson, to question Mrs. Miller, but she declined on the advice of her attorney. As far as I could determine, it seems she provided an account to Lance, who then conveyed it to the police. She returned to her home on Bella Vista Street. The statement provided disclosed that Gordon hadn't been feeling very well all day. He had a stomach ulcer which acted up quite a bit, and he also seemed to have been quite prone to migraines. One of his migraines was aggravated by an accident Dr. Miller had been in earlier that day when he had struck a dog. Around 10.30 that night, he had wanted some hot chocolate, but there wasn't enough milk in the refrigerator, so he and Lucille had to go to the store and get some more. The first grocery store they went to was closed, so they had to drive around until they found another. The Millers had been at the second store sometime around 12.30, only shortly before the fatal accident. This was later confirmed by a woman named Nisha Chaplin, who recalled seeing the car. In the absence of Mrs. Miller, police noted that the passenger side door was locked. They also noticed an open gas can lying on its side on the floor of the burnt car, and that neither the gas tank nor the gas lines were ruptured. The car was in low gear, which they felt was inconsistent with the speed of 35 miles an hour it had supposedly been going, and the skid marks on the road also seemed inconsistent with Lucille's statement. A rock lay on the back seat, and a charred stick lay nearby, corroborating her account of trying to get her husband out of the car. Only the parking lights were on. One of the headlights had been damaged in the accident earlier that day. Turning to the body itself, Deputy Coroner A.J. McCann said he found evidence indicating that Dr. Miller had been alive at the time the fire started. He also noted cracked ribs, but did not place too much emphasis on this, as this was not an uncommon occurrence in cases of death by fire. Investigating the following morning, it was discovered that Mrs. Miller had filed for divorce from her husband in July 1964 on grounds of, quote, extreme cruelty. The filing was withdrawn by August, and so despite the, the lack of definitive physical evidence of, well, of much of anything, but suspicious about this filing and her reluctance to speak, Lucille Miller was arrested at her home at approximately 2 p.m. on the afternoon of October 8th, just, after, just over 12 hours after the fire. She was brought to the woman's section of the San Bernardino County Jail. In shifts, the attorneys retained by Mrs. Miller took turns maintaining a watch over the cell in which she was held. We are not going to leave her side, not for one second. If our client is going to be questioned, said Edward P. Foley, later to become the prominent lawyer in the case, we want one of our men there. Captain Floyd Jones of the Sheriff's Office stated, The coroner reported no injuries were apparently suffered by Dr. Miller before the fire, and that he was alive when the fire started. There was no evidence of any kind of collision or accident. The car's gas tank was not ruptured, and we believe the fire was caused by some other form of combustion. A can of the type used for gasoline was found in the back of the car, empty, the cap off. We believe it contained gasoline. We are continuing to hold Mrs. Miller because we believe we will be able to present enough evidence to the district attorney to get a complaint charging murder. By October 11th, 
The legal fight had already begun, with Lucille's attorneys declaring that she was being held illegally. She had now been in custody for 48 hours without charge, a violation of California's state law. A trial for her release on grounds of habeas corpus was scheduled for October 13th. When that date came, Judge John W. Kerrigan denied the motion, and almost immediately, Deputy District Attorney Don Turner filed former murder charges. Coroner Edward Doyle had found that Gordon Miller had died of, quote, respiratory tract burns due to the inhalation of flames, and the toxicology reports had not yet been prepared, yet he nevertheless proclaimed that he had definitely been murdered. The first of multiple requests for bail, all of which were denied, came on October 16th. In this case, Foley argued that the denial of bail, when coupled with not disclosing the grounds for the murder charge, was another violation of constitutional rights. It was up to the state to prove why she should not be given bail, he said, not for the defense to prove why she should. Lucille was prohibited from attending the funeral of her husband the previous day and was kept in the San Bernardino County Jail for protection. On October 20th, the toxicology reports came back, and they revealed that Gordon Miller had barbiturates in his system at the time of his death. The implication, according to ADA Turner, was that he had been drugged by his, by his wife prior to his death. Addressing the coroner, Foley responded to this. He has intimated that the doctor was drugged or intoxicated. I suggest he be asked what his investigation revealed concerning the usage of barbiturates by Dr. Miller. I also request to know the percentage of barbiturates in the bloodstream of Dr. Miller at the time of his death. The district attorney's office knows Dr. Miller used barbiturates. They know he had a serious and painful ulcer. Indeed, it was well known that the doctor was a habitual user of these drugs to deal with his migraines and stomach issues. So the presence of the chemicals in his bloodstream was not to be unexpected and didn't necessarily imply that his wife had drugged him. The day after the toxicology report was returned, Lucille Miller was formally indicted on October 21st. It was charged that financial difficulties, the Millers had accumulated a considerable amount of debt, and an affair with another man led her to deliberately set the car alight. Arson expert W.A. Snare said that there were signs of an accelerant and that the fire was definitely arson. The barbiturates in Gordon's system once more came up, with a pathologist named J. Robert Davidson testifying that these were that enough were present to, quote, put a normal man in a coma or deep sleep. A level such as this would have made murder quite likely. However, even this was called into question when the Miller's live-in babysitter, Sandy Slagle, testified that not only did Dr. Miller use barbiturates, he used, quote, excessive amounts. He was often rendered fairly non-responsive, so even the presence of highly elevated amounts was not to be unexpected. As to the affair, Slagle testified that it had ended in June, and that although Mrs. Miller attempted to resume it after that date, this never happened. The eldest Miller child, 14-year-old Deborah, said that her mother often ran out of gas in her car and had purchased the can about a week before. Lucille Miller entered a plea of not guilty. Almost immediately upon indictment, a series of motions for release on bail were filed. All were denied. Edward Foley said that Mrs. Miller, quote, 
has said it's bad enough to lose one's husband, become a widow, and look ahead to the prospect of raising three fatherless children, but she was snatched out of her home, thrown into jail, and accused of murdering her husband. He also looked forward to a full trial, saying, quote, I think everyone will have a much clearer and different picture of the case if I am able to question witnesses on the stand. From what I've picked up on the grand jury proceedings, it appears that the majority of the information presented indicated a defense for my client and substantiated her statements to the California Highway Patrol. He did not dispute the affair, but stated that it was not relevant to the case in any way. Upon the indictment, Deborah went to stay with a friend in Rancho Cucamonga, and the two younger sons, Ronan and Guy, were sent to live with Gordon's family in Washington. The district attorney's office announced that they intended to seek the death penalty in the Miller case, and to prove that, quote, Mrs. Miller wanted to live better than her $30,000 a year husband could afford. Assistant District Attorney Don Turner stated also that, quote, the death of Dr. Gordon E. Miller was a, cold, was a cold, calculated, premeditated murder, and I believe she would do it again. A trial was underway when, on December 5th, an emergency meeting was called with the attorneys and Judge Carl Hilliard about a newspaper article that appeared in his San Bernardino Sun-Telegram, in which Sheriff Bland wondered whether Lucille Miller was implicated in the murder of Elaine Hayton. Elaine was a friend of Lucille's, and her death several months previous, in April 1964, had been ruled to be from natural causes. She was found dead in bed one day, not suspicious in itself, but barbiturates were found in Elaine's system, and they had been found in Gordon's system, and it was Elaine's husband, Arthwell, that Lucille had been having an affair with. Was it such a stretch that she might have drugged Elaine Hayton just as she had her husband? Judge Hilliard said that he was mulling over declaring the case a mistrial based on this article, though. It unnecessarily inflamed things, after all. There was no evidence that Elaine Hayton had been murdered, much less by Lucille Miller. The attorneys agreed, and a mistrial was declared. A new trial was scheduled for January 11th. The defense said that the district attorney's office and the sheriff's office were to blame. Foley said a change of venue may be necessary, and on December 10th, he asked for a federal investigation into how things had proceeded up to this point. Hello, listeners. I'm Jaden McKell, and welcome to Straight Up Enigmas a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, true crime, and riddles from the ancient world are all things to expect when you tune in to Straight Up Enigmas. Like the time we discussed the mysterious death of Alyssa Lamb, or share terrifying true stories from real people about sleep paralysis and shadow people. In one of our most recent episodes, I told the story of Debbie Kent, the sister of my dad's best friend from high school, who was abducted and murdered by serial killer Ted Bundy. Join us every Tuesday and dive into the world's weirdest riddles, unsolved cold cases, and ghostly encounters. You can find our Straight Up Strange episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. United States District Court Judge Thurman Clark told Santa Bernardino County officials 
to refrain from, quote, questioning plaintiff and from making accusatory and derogatory statements to her outside the presence of her attorney. On December 21st, it was learned, or at least became public knowledge anyway, that Lucille Miller was three and a half months pregnant. It was believed that the baby had been conceived sometime around October 5th, or just before the accident. Edward Foley released a comment about the findings after consultation with his client. There is absolutely no question but that the baby was was fathered by Mrs. Miller's late husband. This should dispel all doubts about their relationship and prove that they were deeply in love and devoted to each other. When the trial came, it became apparent that the Millers were nearly $65,000 in debt. Arthwell Hayton, the man with whom Lucille Miller had been having an affair, was questioned by ADA Turner. He testified that on about April 20th, 1964, Mrs. Miller had proposed to him. And about the following quote, Cork, as should be evident by the context, was a nickname for Gordon Miller. She told me that she had definitely decided to divorce Cork and, and, and said, I know you won't be able to handle it, but can you suggest an attorney? Mrs. Miller said she had had enough of Cork. She was unhappy and had no desire for the home they were building. Then she said, Arthwell, for many years I've admired you. You are successful. I like the social and political people you are with. And really, Elaine doesn't appreciate these things like I do. I am going to divorce Cork. You know how I feel. Then she suggested I talk to Elaine and ask for a divorce. I told her, Lucille, I don't want to hear any talk like that. I said, maybe I would like some things changed in Elaine. Maybe she would like some things changed in me. She's a wonderful mother to our four children. I won't divorce her for anything in the world. Lucille said, I'm going to divorce Cork in any event, and I'm pretty persistent. I told her, if you're going to wait for me, you're going to wait a long time. He said he advised her against seeking a divorce. A few days after this, Arthwell took a trip to Catalina, and it was while he was there that he received word that Elaine had died. He also told Turner about a conversation they had had in either May or June. I said, Lucille, I have received a visit from the pastor of my church, and I'm concerned about what he said. He told me what you have been saying in the Redlands and Loma Linda areas. You've told people that I'm going to marry you and move over to your home. It's not so, and you know it isn't so. I am concerned about the reputation of my children, and I suggest you not to call me anymore. She said, Look, Arthwell, the one trouble with you is you listen to those people in Redlands and Loma Linda. Just stop listening to those hypocrites and supercilious people. You're too concerned with what they say. I told her, I live there. I'm concerned with what they say, and I'm concerned with what you have said to other people. He said that just after this this confrontation, Mrs. Miller followed him around town several times, on one occasion unmooring his boat from the dock when he had a date on board. He also testified that on returning home, Mrs. Miller's car was blocking his driveway. On July 29, 1964, he said, he received several phone calls from her, demanding to see him. He hung up each time and claimed that later he was called by Sandy Slegel, who said, Arthwell, I'm here with Lucille, and she's beside herself, and if you really know what's good for you and the children, you'll see her tonight. Arthwell, you have no realization or comprehension of what this woman is capable of doing. So for your own safety, you'll see her and see her tonight. He hung up on this call as well and said that the last time he saw Mrs. Miller was in September. 
Deborah Miller, Lucille's daughter, said that her father hadn't gone to work for a week before his death. She said that he was often suicidal, and that on several occasions, he had left the house and, his mother, and her mother had ran, on, ran out after him. She also said that on at least one occasion, she remembered her mother giving her the car keys and telling her to go into her bedroom and lock the door. Comments on Dr. Miller's suicidal state of mind were confirmed by Sandy Slegel, who likewise remembered several instances of Lucille's taking the car keys. It was said that Gordon intended on committing suicide in the car and making it look like an accident so that his family would receive the insurance payout. He was planning to, quote, go to the mountains and drive off a cliff. He had been suicidal since at least 1959. About the gas can found in the car, she testified that it was Gordon who often ran out of gas in the car, not his wife. Finally, Lucille Miller herself took the stand. She recalled how, while driving along Banyan Street, the steering began to act up. Quote, The thing just went out of control on me. It pulled. I pulled the opposite way. Recalling the accident itself, she said, There was this flame or flames behind me. The whole thing seemed to remind me like what I've seen in a movie. There were large orange-red flames going up behind me. I was panicked. I ran around the front of the car to the side. I couldn't open the door. I realized I had locked it. My best thought was to look for a rock. I went to the right front of the car. I found one, but it was buried in the sand. I was digging at it with my hands, but I couldn't lift it. I got a smaller one just ahead of it. I took it and threw it through the front window. I tried to find a stick to push him out of the car. I found a stick, but it wasn't big enough. The flames were so much hotter, I couldn't do it. There were too many flames. The rock, the stick, and the rest of her testimony confirmed the statement she had given to police the night of the accident. I suppose a small inconsistency is her statement that she threw the rock through the front window when it was found on the back seat. But this isn't damning by any means, in my opinion. Either it ended up in the back, especially possible, if she was angling it so that she didn't hit her husband, or since she was in a stressful situation, perhaps she merely misremembered. In closing arguments made on February 25th, Foley accused ADA Turner and Arthwell Hayton of, quote, perpetrating a fraud in the courtroom. He said of Hayton's testimony, Syrup poured out of the stand about how Mr. Hayton re resisted my client's advances. Mr. Arthwell Hayton was a salacious hypocrite. He never related in two hours about stopping and getting caught. He's not the paragon of virtue Mr. Turner would have you believe he is. It came out during Foley's closing argument that the gas can, which was a vital piece of evidence, had been lost by investigators. There had apparently never been any specific information given by W.A. Snare as to why he made the declaration that the fire in the car was clearly arson. He also made an interesting point, which was, she was arrested at 1.30 p.m. at her home, before the autopsy, before an arson investigator had seen the car, before barbiturates were found, before evidence of gasoline in the car. They didn't have it then. Dr. Miller, he said, had deep-rooted problems. A frustrated doctor, depressed, he had a guilt complex. We tried to show Dr. Miller made suicide threats, but not to malign him. Why the, t why the testimony about suicide threats? To, sh to show she didn't have to kill her husband. All she had to do was stop from preventing him from committing suicide. 
A valid point, in my opinion. Turner's arguments maintained that Lucille Miller had drugged her husband, drove around until he passed out, and then torched the car. He said that the smooth curve of the skid marks on the road disputed that there was any sort of sudden jerk of the wheels, as Mrs. Miller said there had been. He also questioned why her husband's Volkswagen was used that night instead of her own car, and for that matter why, if she bought the gas can for her own use, was it found in the Volkswagen. This is disputed by Sandy Slegel's testimony, which indicated that it was indeed Dr. Miller who ran out of gas. He also claimed that when at the second grocery store, the one where she had been seen by Mrs. Chaplin, Mrs. Miller had parked in a darkened part of the parking lot, away from the lights. Turner's closing remarks were as follows. There had been no reasonable explanation offered for the death of Dr. Gordon E. Miller, except murder, premeditated murder in the first degree. No verdict will fit the facts other than guilty. No matter what is said by either me or Mr. Foley, go back to the facts. You took an oath to bring in a verdict based on facts, not on passion, pity, or prejudice. He maintained that Mrs. Miller, who by the testimony of a man named James had inquired quite a bit about autopsies and what could be determined by them, meant to use the fire to conceal levels of barbiturates in her husband's system. She had to get him to sleep so he couldn't get out of the car. She was worried there might be enough of the body left for an autopsy, so she wanted to cremate him. She couldn't let him die in bed. After all, she couldn't afford to lose the double indemnity insurance that went along with accidental death. She realized it, it would take time for her to cultivate Mr. Hayton to come around to her way of thinking. Maybe if Dr. Miller was gone, then, then maybe there would be no more gossip about Hayton going around mar with a married woman. This is her husband. She may not love him, but remember she said $25,000 a year is better than nothing. I'd like to think a wife would make some effort to rescue her husband. I defy you to find any effort to do anything. She just got out. The jury began deliberation on March, March 2, 1965, and didn't return their verdict until March 5th. They had decided that Lucille Miller was guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced her to life in prison as the prosecution didn't want to execute a pregnant woman. There was a dramatic scene in the hallway of the courthouse where Sandy Slagle shouted at the jurors as they left the courtroom. She was quickly escorted away. Her conviction was contested in 1966, but upheld by the California Supreme Court. It was also sent to the United States Supreme Court for review in 1967. Her conviction was based on the testimony of an undercover operative, Peggy Fisk, who had been placed in the holding cell with Lucille Miller early on. By disguising a policewoman as a prisoner arrested on drug charges, the vigil maintained by Miller's defense attorneys was circumvented. It was said that this was a civil rights violation. Although they had famed attorney F. Lee Bailey working for the defense, in this case, too, the conviction was upheld, with the Supreme Court ruling in 1968 that the use of Fisk's testimony wasn't prejudicial and that it hadn't had too much bearing on the case. Peggy Fisk had supplied the prosecution with statements indicating that Lucille never really loved her husband and that she planned to take the children to Europe with the insurance money. Even after this defeat, the defense kept trying to get the case brought before the Court of Appeals. Eventually, it came to the opinion of an appeals court judge named Richard Chambers, who was more sympathetic than the others had been. Finally, 
Lucille Miller was paroled in 1972. It's unclear what happened to her after her release from prison. It was said that she remarried after she got out, but didn't live in San Bernardino County anymore. Whether this was a condition of her parole, I'm not certain, but I wouldn't have blamed her for simply not wanting to live there anymore. She died in 1986. The child she was pregnant with at the time of the trial, a daughter named Kimmy, died in 1990. As far as I know, all three other children are alive. At any rate, were as of 2014, when the episode of A Crime to Remember discussing this case was made. They talked to two of the children, Deborah and one of the sons, I forget which, in that episode. Deborah said in a comment made on there that she honestly no longer cares if her mother killed her father or not. I can understand that, I suppose. Being gone, you just want to remember her as your mother. I thought this was a very interesting case when I heard about it. It's one of those where I just don't really know what I think about it. On the one hand, I admit that the prosecution did have a lot of stuff that made Lucille Miller look bad. She certainly might have done it. That certainly seems to be a pretty commonly accepted outcome of the case. But I feel like, despite the closing arguments of Turner that no verdict will fit the facts other than guilty, it's also a case in which there are, indeed, other possible outcomes of the case. One possibility is that Gordon, suicidal as he was according to the testimony of several people including those closest to him, may have simply found himself unable to actually bring himself to actually do it, and may have made some sort of deal with his wife in which she, for lack of a better word, helped him. Another, which I thought of based on Sandy Slagle's testimony in particular, that he wanted to kill himself in the car, and that it was he who ran out of gas, accounting for the gas can's presence there, is that it might have simply been a suicide. Maybe he had been meaning to do it at some point in the past and forgot about it. However that happened, perhaps it was a suicide, and it just happened that his wife was in the car and ended up getting blamed for something that he did. Or maybe she really did kill him. Which, to be honest, I do honestly think is most likely the case. Who knows? Regardless, it does seem that there was a good bit of presumption involved. And I don't believe the prosecution really had as much evidence as they thought they did. I'm interested to know what you, what you think actually happened in this case. I feel like there's a decent case for a number of possibilities. So, get a hold of me in any of the usual places and let me know. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a, sor a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.